Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Larry Rojak from the law firm Lawrence and Rojak LLC in Oceanside, New York. The firm is dedicated exclusively to matters pertaining to liability and coverage. Mr. Rojak is the author of Rojak's New York No-Fault Law and Practice, which is the first comprehensive guide ever published on the subject. He has also authored a book on insurance and negligence law. He has an impressive array of both insurance company and non-insurance company clients. His references are valued by attorneys, adjusters, claims managers, and even judges. We're pleased to have you with us today, Larry. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Today's topic is on the complexity of the no-fault law and practices and what insurance companies and self-insureds need to be aware of. And Brennan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Uh, Larry, the core no-fault law for New York was enacted in 1977. What makes this litigation so complex, and why is there a strong need for this reference? One of the key things to know about New York no-fault law is that because it is a creation of statute, it's a field that did not exist under the common law. So all of the usual principles that apply to negligence and tort litigation do not apply in no-fault law. The statute, which is Article 51 of the New York Insurance Law, created no-fault, and then the insurance department issued a series of regulations, which are known as Regulation 68, which set forth all the particulars of the procedures and rules that insurance companies and claimants have to follow. So in order to engage in no-fault practice at all, one must become familiar with a voluminous set of regulations which are extremely particular in regard to matters especially relating to time and content of the submission of forms and yet have big loopholes in them and are uh, very nonspecific as to the ways in which these forms and procedures are carried out. So the, the first thing that claims people and attorneys have to be familiar with is this large body of regulations. And then they have to become familiar with the enormous volume of court decisions that result from the litigation, because the court decisions are supposed to be clarifying the fuzzy areas of no-fault law, but ironically, they usually don't, because often they will state that somebody either did meet a standard or not meet a standard, but they won't say what the standards are. And that's just for openers. Okay, now, Larry, are these issues uh, unique only to New York, and does New York City in particular have a big influence on this? Well, probably 95% or more of all no-fault litigation takes place in the five boroughs of the city of New York, with most of the rest of it taken up by Long Island and Buffalo. There is very, very little no-fault litigation outside of those venues. So the city of New York and the appellate courts, which hear appeals from New York City and Long Island, have all of the significant no-fault litigation and, and appellate decisions. Uh, Larry, how does New York compare to other states? There really is no comparison. Although there are 12 states that have some form of no-fault, which is also called PIP, PIP standing for personal injury protection, New York's is not like any of the others. And my understanding is that the 
volume of no-fault claims and the volume of no-fault litigation in the other 11 no-fault states is nothing like New York. There is no comparison. It's uh, New York no-fault is, I think of it as a unique subculture. Uh, what do the claims divisions of insurance companies need to be aware of? There's so much it's hard to say where to start, but let me start by saying the principal thing they need to be aware of are the time frames that are in the no-fault regulations, which for the most part are drop-dead time frames. Drop-dead meaning that if they fall behind or violate or don't meet any of the particular time frames that are set forth for the insurance company to respond to the various documents that are submitted by the claimants at various stages of the claim, um, violating those time frames in any one of them will result in the insurance carrier losing any defenses it has to the claim. Therefore, they will have to pay a claim regardless of its merit, and according to New York's Court of Appeals, in a case called Fair Price versus Travelers Insurance Company, the violation of any of these time frames means that the insurance carrier has to pay even if the facts should prove that the claim is completely fraudulent. Now, Larry, how stable are the laws and policies? Is there much change at all, and do you anticipate doing a rewrite at any point in the near future on this? The regulations themselves are supposed to be in a state of being reviewed for amendment, but there is no telling when those amendments are going to come out, and I've seen the proposed amendment, and some of them have to do with changing some of the specific time frames in terms of the number of days for something to be submitted or something to be responded to, but that will just make things more complex and create more possibilities for errors as insurance companies try to adapt to these new time frames after just getting used to the ones from the last amendment back in 2002. As far as the stability of the laws and policies, hardly a day goes by when a court decision or an appellate decision does not come out on some no-fault case that changes things. It's the sort of thing where if you're away from it for three months, you have a lot to catch up on. There's no other field of law that I'm aware of where changes happen so fast, where little details get changed so fast. Would you like me to give you a couple of examples? Sure, absolutely. All right. It used to be that if a certain type of document called a verification request, this is a request by the insurance company in writing for more details on the claim. According to the regulations, the insurance company had 15 days to send out the first request, and then if there was no response in 30 days, then only from day 31 to day 40 could they issue the second verification request. And if it was any earlier or any later, it was invalid and the insurance company had to pay the claim. Just in the past couple of months, there have been new court decisions that said, well, if it's one court decision said, if, if the second request is three days early, that's not fatal. And then there was a decision two days ago that says, if the second request is 14 days early, it's not fatal. Now, one of the things about no-fault law that is particularly maddening is that more cases are decided on errors in form than on substance. 
such things as who notarized an affidavit or what state were they notarized in or whether a particular turn of a phrase or, or use of words went one way or another. More no-fault suits are decided on that basis than on the basis of, for example, was this medical treatment really necessary or did this accident really happen or not? In fact, a, a court decision from just a couple of days ago decried this triumph of form over substance, and yet even in that very court decision, they declined to issue a ruling that actually clarified the law in such a way as to help change that so that it was more about substance than form. Okay, great. Thanks for that additional commentary. Okay. And are there any other projects you'll be working on in the near future? I'm actually starting to work on a book that's tentatively entitled Courtroom Medicine for No-Fault Lawyers. That's a whole story in itself, and it's probably something, uh, if we have time right now, for me to elaborate a bit on. Well, many no-fault claims are denied on the basis that a peer-reviewed doctor or a doctor who's performed an independent medical exam has decided or opined that the particular medical treatment in question was not medically necessary. And then if that case goes to trial, the insurance company has to pay for the peer review doctor or the IME doctor to come into court and explain why, in his medical opinion, a particular procedure or diagnostic test was not necessary. The way medical tests and procedures are determined to be necessary or not in court is very, very different than it is out in the real world. I'll give you one example. It's very, very common for no-fault claimants to be sent for MRIs. Now, in the real world of medicine, and I call it, and by the real world, I mean the world outside of no-fault, MRIs are relatively unusual. A patient is not usually referred for an MRI shortly after an automobile accident unless it's an emergency situation where there is a a very severe trauma, and by severe, I mean the kind that requires surgery, or unless there's paralysis, or what doctors call an emergent situation, which which means an emergency. But in no-fault practice, it's extremely common for patients who go to a doctor with garden-variety aches and pains and soreness to be referred for an MRI immediately. The general consensus of medical opinion, as doctors will testify, is that you don't do an MRI on a car accident victim unless they've gone four weeks to eight weeks and allowed the body to go through some of its natural healing, and then only if severe symptoms persist, then you take an MRI to see what's going on with this person. But in no-fault practice, it's often very difficult to get a judge to sustain a denial of an MRI bill in this type of situation because the burden, the bar, is set very high. And judges have ruled over and over that they don't want or they are reluctant to second-guess a treating physician. But the reality is that what's allowed or what claimants can succeed on in no-fault litigation is much more extensive than what would commonly be encountered in medical practice outside of the no-fault realm. So I'm starting to consult with doctors to 
put together a guide, a medical guide for no-fault attorneys because, strangely enough, in my experience, and I've been doing this for 30 years, there are very few attorneys in the no-fault field who really know much about medicine. They tend to concentrate more on the form issues, you know, whether every I is dotted and T is crossed, for a number of reasons, one of which being that more cases are won or lost on form than they are on substance. Well, thanks very much, and good luck with that endeavor, and we'll have to have you on a future uh, episode and, and hear how that went. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I hope that your listeners will find this to be useful. I'm sure they will. Thanks again. Thank you. That was Lawrence Rojak from the law firm of Lawrence and Rojak LLC in Oceanside, New York. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBES listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 